HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. This week on Meat and 3, we're jumping into a world filled with fizz, iridescence, and deliciousness. We're talking about bubbles. It came from the air gas truck. Yeah, no, I never thought about it before that. And I think it's emerged as a bulbous tea shops, a site of Asian American youth uh, identity building. We're called the invisible industry because these products you don't really see, but they're around us in every way, um, every day. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking all about pregnancy. More and more women are delaying childbirth until later in life, so the window of time to get pregnant is therefore a bit smaller, and getting pregnant can be harder. This is the annoying reality, and one that I, as someone who is 38 and pregnant for the first time, had to come to terms with. But regardless of your age, if you want to get pregnant, it's incredibly beneficial to be proactive about your health from the outset. This being a show all about food, I started wondering about the intersection of diet and conception and the impact that what both women and men eat can have on their ability to get pregnant, all of which led me to Dr. Nicole Avina. Nicole is a research neuroscientist, author, and expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction. She's published extensively on diet during pregnancy and childhood nutrition as well. She's joining me now to discuss her new book that was just released last week, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. Nicole, welcome to the show. Sounds great. Glad to be here. Um, Okay, so uh, let's just, you know, tell me about yourself and your background. So my background is that I am a professor of neuroscience. I uh, have had a long-standing interest in understanding how food impacts our brain and vice versa. And so I have a research lab at Mount Sinai Medical School. And then I'm also a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. And really, I guess my interests have just been in trying to better understand the 
intersects between food and the brain and how we can learn from that and how just we can improve our health by knowing about all this really cool and interesting research that's going on out there about it. And how did you come to write this book? Well, it's actually interesting. It's um, been somewhat of a journey for me. I got interested in writing books. I never really sort of saw myself as an author. I kind of, you know, saw myself as more of a professor person who was writing research papers all the time. And then I guess about seven or eight years ago, I decided to write a book about food addiction because our lab had been studying food addiction for so long and we had all these research papers about it. And it just seemed like one of those things that, you know, the general public was just really, really interested in. So I decided to write a book called Why Diets Fail Because You're Addicted to Sugar to really just summarize the research around sugar addiction. And I kind of got hooked. (laughs) It's funny because I had just had my first daughter and I remember thinking, boy, like writing books is a little bit like having children. You have one and then you're like, I'm never doing this again. And then you're like, you know what? It wasn't so bad. So that led me to write um, a couple more books, uh, what to eat when you're pregnant and then Mm -hmm. what to feed your baby and toddler. And then this new book, what to eat when you want to get pregnant, really just kind of came out of the natural next step of trying to sort of fill in the voids that are out there with education about early life and education about nutrition and bring those two together. So it was really kind of a natural thing for me to write after, you know, writing these other books over the past couple of years. The goal of the book is to provide dietary advice to help couples conceive. How common are infertility issues today and has it increased in recent decades? It is increasing. We're seeing that for a few different reasons, infertility rates are going up. Partly it's because women are delaying having children. They're waiting until later in life. They're, you know, in their careers a bit more early in life or they're getting married later in life or they're deciding, you know, that they're going to have children on their own later in life. And what ends up happening is our fertility is declining as we age. And so for many women, by the time they get to the point where they're ready to have a baby, they're already kind of up against, you know, some challenges and barriers just with their fertility naturally declining. And so, you know, we're seeing this happening not only for, you know, primary cases of infertility where someone's struggling to get pregnant with their first child, but also with secondary types of infertility where people are maybe having a hard time getting pregnant with a second or a third child. And so it is something that we are seeing, you know, more and more people seeking help for. And it's something that I think as time goes on, we're going to see that those numbers are going to continue to rise. Um, Well, and this is, yes, more on that in just one second. But, and this was something that is very personal to you, right? You write about how um, you had trouble conceiving your second daughter. Yes, yes. And it was something that, you know, for me, I felt like I thought when I, you know, got pregnant with my first daughter that it'd be so easy to figure out what type of diet I should follow or what to eat because, you know, I study nutrition for a living. I, you know, eat, sleep and breathe this stuff. Yeah. And I was just really taken aback by how little attention was paid to nutrition during pregnancy and how, 
you know, women were advised not to eat this, not to eat that. It was all very yes. negative. And it's all about how much weight you're gaining every week. You get on that scale at the obstetrician's <laughs> office and it's like, felt like the I was getting part on like, of my day. It's really, <laughs> I felt like I was like cattle getting weighed to go, you know, yes. at the auction. Yeah. And I just felt like, you know, people really could use some positivity that's related to nutrition and, you know, the fact that you get a lot bigger when you're pregnant and that's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. And there really just didn't seem like there was anything out there um, about how you could, you know, harness the powers of food to benefit not only your health and pregnancy, but also the development of your baby. And the same goes for fertility. I think that, you know, people fall into a couple different camps. They either are, you know, getting pregnant and just immediately it happens. And it, for them, it just happens overnight. But I think more and more people these days are kind of planning it in advance. They're thinking, okay, maybe in a year or two, we're going to try to have a baby. We got to, you know, see how things go. And there's so much you can do to get yourself ready for that, to, you know, get your body in check and get your, you know, nutrition under control because we know from the research that there is so much in our food environment that can have a negative or a positive impact on our fertility and not only for women but also for men. Yeah. And I think that's I really appreciate your that perspective on that because that's very much been my experience. Um you know, it's been like what you can't eat and what you shouldn't do and I that could be very um particular to the United States. I think that we kind of treat uh, pregnancy as um, like there's a, you know, like a pathology in this country in, in some ways, like what's what's wrong with you and what you shouldn't be doing. So I really, um, I, I have been drawn to material that is like more proactive and um, positive. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that you're right that, you know, we've kind of turned pregnancy in this country into somewhat of an illness or some like, you know, medical issue that we have to treat. And I, I think that it's something that we should realize that we can use research that's out there and capitalize on ways to promote our health, to promote mm -hmm. a healthy pregnancy. And I think that, you know, that's been my goal is to give people the tools so that they can feel empowered. And especially with this new book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I face and I hear from other people who, you know, struggle with infertility that they face is that it, you feel like you're out of control. You have lost control of your life. You, you know, can't get pregnant when you want to. You're, you know, basically just waiting on these other people to help you figure out how this will work or if it will work. And that feeling of loss of control is just such a terrible thing. And so I feel like you know, having some control is great and knowing that, you know, you can be doing things to help move things forward and to improve your health, to improve your partner's health and to, you know, hopefully improve your fertility as well at the same time. So I want to get back to infertility. My understanding, and this could be incorrect, but my understanding is that a lot of times when a couple is infertile, it most often has something to do with the guy. Is that true? Or is that just like my own bias? <laughs> no, that's, it's not your own bias. It's really a balance. It's, it's both, both parties contribute. And I think it's often the case that there can sometimes be a problem on both sides in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, the female having some problem or the male having some problem. And often it's a case that these things can be easily fixed. Um, and, you know, things can just naturally happen without having to do too much intervention. But sometimes, 
you know, that isn't the case. And, you know, more and more aggressive steps need to be taken in order for somebody to be able to have a baby or for a couple to be able to have a baby. And so I think, though, that you raise a good point that it is important that when we talk about fertility health, that Mm -hmm. we understand that this has to do with men too, not Mm -hmm. just women. I think certainly with pregnancy, I mean, everything is really focused on the woman because she's obviously the one carrying the baby. But when it comes to fertility, it's just as important for men to be aware of, you know, what they're doing to their bodies and what they're putting into their bodies and how that can affect their sperm health and, you know, their ability to have an improved fertility. Yeah, I I really also appreciated that about the about your book is that you make that very clear throughout. You talk specifically about like what it, you know what certain foods and nutrients are um, beneficial for men and with, with their reproductive health. Um, speaking of which, I know this is a slightly tangential um, to your book, but the um, Dr. Shauna Swan, who is I believe a fertility expert at Mount Sinai, also yes, yes. just came out with a new book t- which was pretty terrifying um, about how like the world's population will half the population she predicts won't be able to reproduce on their own by 2050. And that, um, you know, just this will be due to like a huge increase basically in infertility in men. Do yes. you, what are, what are your thoughts on this work? Well, yeah. So I, I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy of her book because I actually, you know, read it ahead of time and gave her some feedback and, you know, gave a little blurb for the book. And I could not put the book down. It was really wow. just fascinating um, to see that, you know, these statistics. And yeah, I, I mean, in my book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant, that's, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's important that men are aware of all the different things, not only in the environment in general, but just specifically in what's in our food, what's, you know, getting into the food supply, Uh, many of these different, you know, pesticides, chemicals, all of these metals, like these are things that, you know, we ingest almost every day, we don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. And over time, they build up in our system. And we're now finding that, you know, we're not shedding them, we're not, you know, able to get rid of these things as easily as we would hope. And so what ends up happening is that there are health consequences that are associated with that. And one of them is going to be infertility for men. And so um, I think it's just such a, a scary, <laughs> but, you know, important topic that we need to be talking about and learning more about and hopefully taking steps to correct it. Let's talk more specifically about the connection between food and fertility. Some people might be wondering, can I just eat a balanced diet and take a prenatal vitamin and be all set? What are the benefits to being more specific about your dietary choices? Well, I think that it really boils down to, you know, people say simplistic things like that, like, oh, just eat a healthy diet and take a prenatal vitamin and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But we know that that's not reality. We know that, you know, most women are entering, who are entering a pregnancy are either overweight or obese. The vast majority are. And that's because the vast majority of pregnant women of childbearing age in our society are already struggling with being overweight or obese. And so people may be entering a pregnancy or entering, you know, trying to get pregnant and not necessarily be eating a completely healthy diet to begin with. They might be struggling, you know, with what a healthy diet looks like, what a balanced diet looks like. Mm -hmm. 
And I think nowadays too, it gets so complicated because we have so many different, you know, diet programs that are out there, advice about what you should eat. And I think a lot of people don't know what to eat. I hear this a lot in my practice, like where people are just so lost because they are like, oh, am I supposed to eat keto? Am I supposed to eat, you know, like a caveman? Am I, what am I supposed to do? You're like, (laughs) no, no, (laughs) no, no to all. So um, no juice, no, no, like crash diets, no juicing. I love that you you point that out. Like so helpful. Yeah. And so I think people really just kind of need a picture of what a healthy diet looks like. And I think that in the book, you know, when I talk about the specific foods that are good to eat when you want to get pregnant for men or for women, a lot of them are foods on a healthy balanced diet. But what we're able to do in the book is to point out, you know, why they're healthy, what kind of nutrients they contain, how does that help fertility? And I think people find that information really interesting and empowering. So, you know, if you weren't the biggest avocado fan in the world, but, you know, I told you that if you were to replace, you know, the healthy or the trans fats that you might get in some other types of foods with the type with the healthy monounsaturated fatty acids that you can get from avocados, then you might think twice about, you know, not eating one for breakfast because you would say, oh, okay, well, there's research that suggests that this can have an impact on the way our ovaries function. And that can, you know, help to make sure that, you know, we're able to ovulate correctly every month. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when there's reasons behind, you know, trying out these healthy foods that, you know, maybe in the past, you wouldn't have cared about what it did to your ovaries. Now you actually do. It can make it, more interesting to try different foods and to try out, you know, different types of diets and recipes and things like that. Absolutely. So it's kind of also incorporating um, some of the psychology, you know, some of your expertise in psychology and food and dietary choices. Um, yeah, into your work. absolutely. And I feel like with, with the other books that I've written too, I try to make everything where people are getting the information so that then they can use that to then, do something to advance their health. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I have a a whole bunch of recipes that I've developed that are, you know, really just simple and easy to prepare. And there's things that, you know, you could eat if you're not trying to get pregnant. I mean, they're really just healthy meals, but they're focused on ingredients that we know are going to contain nutrients that can help to promote fertility. So it really just makes it kind of fun. And I think that you know, my goal again for the book was to give people some power back and control back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we can help them to, you know, try out cool new recipes and maybe try to eat different foods that maybe they haven't ever ate before, or weren't a fan of, that can be a great way to just, you know, advance their health beyond their fertility health. Yeah. And great tips for behavioral change, you know, like really tried and true um, methods for changing your behavior in ways that is like, doable <laughs> for lack of a better word right right like you right. know approachable um and i you know i i love that aspect of of, the, of your work thank you yeah and i think you know i try to help people to get an approach that's going to actually work because you know we all know that these you know cold turkey type of you know programs where you're basically are you know e- eating all this or eating none of that it, it really can be very very difficult to stick to mm-hmm. and i think um you know taking little ba- baby steps for behavioral change is the way to go so if you want to you know maybe cut back on added sugar because we know that you know sugar is really not good for fertility it has an inflammatory response to it 
And not only that, but it can increase body weight. And it's just something that we really all should be reducing our intake of. But if you have a really bad sweet tooth, it might not be so easy to just, you know, stop eating sugar. And so I try to give people tools to, you know, figure out ways in which you can do this, but still feel like you're enjoying something and you're not being deprived of the foods that you love all the time. Um, So what is your thought? What are your thoughts on taking a prenatal vitamin? I mean, you know, there are now it's like standard care um, yeah. recommended, you know, if you're even thinking about trying to get on one. But from what I read, there isn't like a lot of comprehensive evidence beh- that you need everything in them besides a few key ingredients like folic acid and DHA. Right, right. And I think that my take on it is that I would err on the side of caution and take a prenatal vitamin, which is essentially like a multivitamin, but has these extra things in it like DHA and folate or folic acid. And those we know are extremely important for early pregnancy and for the development of a healthy baby, you know, in the early phases of pregnancy. And I think that even if you have a super healthy diet and you eat, you know, all the right foods, odds are you're not going to be able to absorb all the nutrition that you need in order to get all the different micronutrients into your diet each day. And that's for a couple reasons. One is because we know that the quality of our food supply these days is just nutrient less, meaning that we have fewer nutrients in the foods that we grow than we did 50 years ago. And that's partly because of the soil and the way that our our soil has been degraded over time. And so even if you're eating, you know, three heads of lettuce a day, you're still not going to get all the nutrition that you would have got if you ate those three heads of lettuce 50 years ago. And so I think that it's important for people to, you know, take the prenatal just because we need to, be able to fill those nutritional gaps that we're not getting from food alone. Mm -hmm. And so many things can impact, you know, if you, even if you're ingesting all these wonderful, healthy foods, you might not be absorbing all of those vitamins that we need. And so that's why I think having, you know, the prenatal on board in addition to a healthy diet is really important because we don't want to run the risk of developing micronutrient deficiencies, especially during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And especially if you're trying to get pregnant in an early part of a pregnancy when you maybe don't even know that you're pregnant yet. So, you know, it is important if you're thinking about getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant that you are taking a prenatal and paying attention. And you almost have to treat your body like you are pregnant because you very well could be and you just don't know it yet because it's so early. Yeah, which is like a bummer. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Let's be honest. Let's be very clear here. It's like not the most fun. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But But I think think that, no, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. And I think, though, that it's one of those things where, you know, everything in moderation, especially caffeine, that's something that a lot of people always ask me about is, you know, what is my take on caffeine and pregnancy? And you know, I tell people, listen, you're giving up a lot to be pregnant and you're going to be giving up a lot when your baby arrives. So get yeah. ready. Yeah. And if you need a cup of coffee in the morning to get yourself going, and if you need one in the afternoon, then that's fine. That's, you know, you're fine. Don't like, I wouldn't be drinking like energy drinks or anything like that. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, a little bit is fine. You just want to make sure it's in moderation. Yeah. Um, so you write about um, how in the book, uh, 
how studies have shown that both diet and lifestyle for mothers and fathers has a multi-generational health effect, which I found fascinating. Um, can you give us an example of this and, and basically how it works? Yeah. So this is what's known as epigenetics. And this is really a kind of hot area right now in the research community because we're learning that what we do in our lifestyle, in our nutrition, in you know, how much stress we have actually can impact not only the health outcomes of our offspring, like our children, but it can even carry along into the next generation and impact the off the, their offspring, our grandchildren. And it's just really this fascinating idea. And the research that's coming out is just so unbelievable that, you know, we're seeing that we have these sort of intergenerational effects of our lifestyle and that can have a negative impact. And that is one of the reasons why we are seeing, you know, rises in many of these different conditions and diseases that are associated with lifestyle, like, you know, some forms of diabetes, like type two diabetes, we see that those numbers are going up and up. Um, again, we mentioned about overweight and obesity rates are continuing to go up. And we think that this is tied back again to behaviors that, you know, our predecessors have been engaged in that can stick with our genetics. And we basically carry that on. And what is the you what are what is an example of this? Um, you talk about the Dutch famine birth cohort study. Can you give us just an overview of, of that to kind of yeah for, for so, illustrate? Yeah, so it's one of the earliest sort of signs that this was happening was back during World War II. There was a famine in parts of Europe, and so food was being rationed. And the Dutch kept really, really good records of their population. And they were able to see when they looked back at those records that an interesting finding emerged in that women who were pregnant during the famine ended up giving birth to babies that later in life grew up to be overweight. And they were able to, you know, link this back almost from a trimester by trimester standpoint. And they could see that, you know, women, especially who were in the early phases of pregnancy, you know, the first trimester, were showing this, this trend. And what ended up happening was that the brains of the babies were developing and the parts of the brains that, you know, are responsible for regulating food intake and sensing hunger were altered because of the fact that the women just didn't have a lot of food during the early parts of their pregnancy. So the babies essentially became wired to later in life, just be really hungry and, and, you know, end up overeating. Mm -hmm. And so that was really the beginning of this field of study of trying to understand how, you know, we can pass things on through our genes. And I, I think most people still think, or used to think at least that, you know, we can pass along, you know, diseases and, you know, risk factors for, you know, maybe alcoholism or cancer or something like that. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing, we can pass along just bad eating behavior. <laughs> we can it's pass along, you know, stressing out too much. I mean, it's just fascinating in terms of how much gets into our DNA and what we can send on to the next generation. I think the two examples or so that you gave in the book, you talked about um, like famine specifically, the effects of um, having like, like a nutrient 
deficit and a mm-hmm. caloric deficit. But I mean, do we even know the effects, the full effects of obesity yet? It is a relatively newer phenomenon in the past several decades where we don't have these multi-generational studies. Right. That's true. And I think that one of the things that we're going to see arising, you know, when we do have these studies and understand more about the intergenerational effects of obesity is that in many ways, it looks a lot like what happens when people are starving. And I know that sounds counterintuitive because we're talking about, you know, two ends of the spectrum and one end you're, you know, have an abundance of calories and on the other end you have lack of calories. But when we take a look at many individuals who are obese or are struggling with being overweight, they're often nutrient deficient. And so there's a big difference between being calorie deficient and being nutrient deficient. And our brain doesn't just sense calories. Our brain is sensing all these different nutrients that it needs to function properly. And so I think that it's likely that we're going to see that we're going to have people who are not only nutrient deficient, but that they're also, you know, in an excess of body weight. Um, And are these, are some of these reversible or even addressable, or is it like a a lost cause? (laughs) No, it's, it's certainly, I I hope that it's reversible and addressable. I think that there is some, you know, obvious promising evidence that just because we are at risk for these things, doesn't mean we're destined to have them happen. And I think, especially with more of the, the lifestyle related, you know, genetic long-term impact that we're seeing, I think that some of that can be reversed, but it's going to be tough because if people are born with this, you know, genetic propensity to overeat Mm -hmm. and they're also born into an environment that, you know, is like our modern food environment, which kind of promotes people overeating. We have really large portion sizes. We don't have enough of a focus on, you know, the importance of healthy eating it's just going to make it an uphill battle. But I, I think that there is some, you know, promise that it can be reversed. It's just not going to be easy. Okay. So in terms of the dietary advice, you provide both a nutrient and a food-based approach, meaning what micronutrients are important to consume, as well as the specific foods that contain these nutrients and many more. Starting with the specific nutrients, what are one or two of them that you would like to highlight as examples? Yeah. So one of the things about, you know, the micronutrients that is just really interesting just in general as a class of, you know, something that's important for our nutrition is that they're called micronutrients because we need very small amounts of them. We don't really need a whole lot of them, but we do need them. And when we don't have them, we can very easily go into a nutrient deficiency. And so a couple that, you know, kind of stick out in my mind that I think are particularly important for overall health, but particularly for fertility health, are things like vitamin D. Now, we typically think about vitamin D as something associated with, you know, our bone health and our, you know, immune system health. But there's a lot of research that suggests that it can play a significant role in female reproduction as well. And this is in part because vitamin D is able to control the genes that are involved in making estrogen, which is something that we obviously need for pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And also the uterine lining produces vitamin D in response to an embryo as it enters the uterine cavity before it implants. So in order for us to have you know, a healthy embryo implantation, we need to make sure we have vitamin D on board. So that's one that I think is particularly important Also, another nutrient is potassium. Potassium is something that, you know, we 
think that if you eat bananas, you know, you're getting enough potassium and it's, you know, important for a variety of things just in our muscular health. But it's also important for making sure we have optimal electrolyte and fluid balance in all of our cells. And so this is why, you know, we need to make sure that when we're talking about, you know, having our cells working properly in terms of dividing and replicating and whatnot, potassium plays a critical role in that. And so especially in those early parts of a pregnancy where we're relying on, you know, a little tiny blastocyst to just keep growing and growing and growing, if we have a deficiency in potassium, that can put it at risk for maybe not panning out. Okay, we are going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I'll be asking about a personal pregnancy issue I've had to contend with. And we'll also hear more advice on specific foods to focus on consuming in your pre-pregnancy journey. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicole Avina, a research neuroscientist, dietary expert, and author of the newly released book, What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. So my personal pregnancy question has to do with my ability to process folic acid, which is a super important nutrient in pregnancy. I have a defective MTHFR gene, which you write about in your chapter on key nutrients for for fertility. And this is not uncommon. I've read that in some ethnicities, the chance to have at least one variant is as high as 50%. But before I go into my question, can you actually first tell us about what this genetic mutation is and what the effects of it are? Yeah, no, it's a common question. And like you said, a lot of people carry this mutation. And so it's not necessarily something that, you know, is is particularly bad. Um, but basically what it means is that if you have this mutation where you have this MTHFR enzyme, it makes folic acid usable by the body. And so if you have a defective gene, that means that you're going to have an impaired ability to produce this enzyme. And so that can make it more difficult for you to break down or eliminate the synthetic folic acid that we get in our prenatal vitamin. And so there are different, you know, forms in which we can get folic acid or folate 
in our bodies. And usually if we're getting it from a prenatal vitamin, it's going to be in that synthetic form like mm -hmm. folic acid. Um, and so if you do have the mutation of this gene, it simply means that the folic acid can't easily be converted into the usable form. And it essentially can just build up on our body. And that means that some symptoms can emerge and some people, they don't have any symptoms, but other people can sometimes have, you know, symptoms like chronic inflammation or fatigue or dizziness. And so that's why if you do have the mutation, people will often be advised to use a supplement that contains methylfolate as the form of, you know, you getting folate, not the synthetic version of folic acid. On that note of taking methylfolate, um, I've asked so many experts whether I should in, in fact be taking methylfolate and have received conflicting advice. One preventative um, health MD that I saw, who's also a com compounding pharmacist and the one who originally discover, discovered that I had this genetic mutation, she prescribed me methylfolate. And you in the book also recommend taking it as well. On the other hand, my OB, maternal fetal medicine specialist, and the CDC's official guidance state that it's not actually necessary. I should note that this was only discussed because I brought it up with my OBs. No one ever asked if I had this issue, which, you know, we've talked about how it is pretty common. So I wanted to discuss it with you today because I think it's a really good example of A, how women who are currently pregnant or planning on becoming pregnant receive a lot of conflicting advice, and B, how more nuanced personalized pregnancy advice isn't really given. So what is a girl like me to do in this situation? Yeah, no, uh, it's a struggle, right? All this information overload, it does not make life easy when you're trying to make these decisions. I think that, you know, my take on it is that if you're taking a supplement that contains, you know, either methylfolate or folic acid, even if you have the gene um, mutation and you're mm -hmm. taking one that has folic acid, I think that, you know, you're still going to get some into your body. It's still going to absorb some of it. It's just not going to be done as readily as it would be if you didn't have the mutation. And so my take on it is that I think, you know, people are, I think, a little bit worried in the medical community that if people find out that they have this mutation, they're not going to take any folic acid or they're just going to say, oh, I better just, you know, eat a lot of, you know, spinach or something to get my folate. And so I think that there's more of a concern about damage that can be done by people not getting folic acid at all into their body via a supplement in terms of what it can do to the neural tube development and, um, you know, that early stage of brain development. Um, that's a bigger concern than, you know, people just not being able to absorb it and having, you know, maybe some of these symptoms that some people experience. Right. So, I mean, I would, you know, say that you have to do what you and your you know, doctor agree is best. But I think that there's certainly enough evidence that does suggest that this obviously is a real thing. People mm -hmm. often, you know, will report symptoms associated with some of the side effects. And it is something that I think, um, you know, we'll have to see as the research comes out, there could be some changes that I would expect to happen in terms of, you know, guidelines um, and more people, I think, agreeing that this is something that people maybe need to be prescribed differently for. Yeah. So it's ever evolving, like, like many things in the dietetic community and medical community. And yes. also it seems like it's probably a great example of 
um, the medical community just wanting to have a one size fits all. Like there, you know, a lot of these topics are more nuanced. And I, I have found, especially, especially with advice that like with pregnant women, like what you kind of can't do, it's just like a blanket statement is easier to make, to like solve for the lowest common denominator. <laughs> it is. And I can say, you know, I am very good friends with my OBGYN and I remember talking to her about, you know, what's her take on vitamins or supplements. And she said, I don't give advice about that because there's too much to have to know to, you know, keep up with the research and to understand, you know, the latest findings on top of, you know, all the other stuff they already have to know about pregnancy, women's health. And so a lot of times I think OBGYNs sort of just say that's not something I want to talk about or advise about, just take your prenatal. And if you want to go beyond that, go get a, you know, a dietitian or nutritionist to talk to you about it. Yeah. Um, it's just, unfortunately, it seems like it's a little bit, uh, out of their wheelhouse in many cases, just because it's such a, it's a completely different field. I mean, we're talking about the field of nutrition, not, you know, obstetrics. Right. Right. And then it's an example, I think also of how, you know, my, my experience just in kind of studying this is that the dietetic community is, um, siloed. That's a big problem, right? You know, I mean, I don't even know if it's like taught in med school, like courses on nutrition. And so, um, no, yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, you know, I teach at Mount Sinai medical school in New York city and well, you're like, actually, no, I do teach that class. <laughs> it's, it's like they get like one lecture. I mean, it's really a very, very small part of the medical education in this country. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, honestly, when people who are, you know, medical doctors and they're interested in nutrition and, you know, bringing that into their practice, they end up going beyond medical school and getting like a master's degree or some public health degree or something where they can get more formal training in nutrition because there's a very, very small amount of it that they get in medical school, unfortunately. So for those, are there certain nutrients um, that you could be getting from your food sources already that if you take an additional supplement of would be dangerous, like you'll be getting too much of, of, of something. And, and so how do you know how much you're like typically getting from a food source? Yeah. So, you know, to be honest, if you're taking a uh, prenatal vitamin and then you're eating a healthy diet, odds are you're not going to be overdosing on anything or getting too much. The only exception to that would be vitamin A, And that's because vitamin A is a vitamin that is considered to be a fat-soluble vitamin. And so vitamin A um, means that, you know, basically that fat-soluble vitamin means that it gets stored into our bodies. It gets stored in our our fat. And so that means we can hang on to it and use it when we need it. Um, And so that's good because that means you don't have to be eating stuff that contains vitamin A every day. Mm -hmm. But that's bad because it also means that, you know, you, the threshold for, you know, having it be safe and having it be toxic is, is pretty small. And so it is possible for us to, you know, kind of overdo it on vitamin A. And so that's why people don't typically ever recommend uh, a vitamin A supplement um, because it can have, you know, this ability to cause us to, you know, have too much of it in our body that can lead to liver toxicity. And then it also could pose some risks for fetal abnormalities too, if you're pregnant. 
So you can pretty much guarantee that you'll get enough vitamin A that you need from just eating things like, you know, eggs, kale, carrots, sweet potatoes, cantaloupe, even cheese, which is always a good thing when you can get some benefits out of cheese. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, that's a great segue to um, transition to the the next section of your book, where um, you know, so fun. You you highlight twenty different standout foods to make sure you, that you do incorporate that you you recommend eating when trying to get pregnant. So, first, how do you recommend incorporating the this advice into your book using this book? And second, can you maybe highlight? one or two um, as examples for our listeners. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is to really kind of just introduce these foods so that people can understand, you know, these are like top foods that you could think about trying to incorporate into your diet or just getting more of into your diet. And the way I really think that, you know, can people best do this is to simply just, you know, try one. I pick one of the foods and say, okay, you know what, we're going to try a bunch of recipes this week that include, you know, wheat bran. And that way we can get some of the health benefits that are coming along with it. But then maybe we'll also find that there's, you know, things that that we like about this. And maybe we want to, you know, include this in our diet more often. And so it's really just kind of a you know, try this and see how you like it type of approach. But I think it's a good idea to give people choices so that, you know, they have a whole bunch of different foods that they can pick from. And then I also have incorporated a bunch of recipes that go along with each of the foods. So people have options beyond just, you know, sprinkling wheat bran on their yogurt in the morning. Um, And so, you know, ways in which you can incorporate it into, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, um, just to kind of make it fun and have something a little bit different for people to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to give a couple of examples. So for instance, um, peppers for women, one of the foods that I recommend is peppers because peppers are loaded with something called phytochemicals. And they also have a lot of vitamins and minerals that can help support fertility. And um, there's also some compounds inside of them, especially in bell peppers that can reduce inflammation. And that's important because we know that that can help with promoting proper ovulation. And so um, it's also important because it can help uh, with increasing our absorption of iron, which is necessary for fertility. And then for the men, I recommend uh, a couple of different foods that are important for sperm health, Mm -hmm. but one that kind of stands out in particular is tomatoes. And this is because tomatoes are rich in something called lycopene, and that's important because it can help improve sperm motility and just overall sperm health. But one of the things that's really interesting about, you know, the research that's been done with looking at, you know, studies that are related to lycopene and male infertility is that sperm count and viability are increased when men consume more lycopene-containing foods. Mm. And It's also interesting, though, that believe it or not, we typically think, you know, processed foods are bad for us and whole foods are good for us. But it's actually the opposite when it comes to tomatoes and fertility health for men, because the lycopene is actually highest in processed tomatoes. Hmm. So you're actually better off. Well, no, like in pasta sauce. Okay. okay. So, yeah, and, and cooked. So you're better off, you know, opting for pasta sauce 
over just throwing a couple of tomatoes on top of your salad if you want to boost your lycopene levels. Interesting. Okay. So this just is incredibly validating for me. I have to say, because (laughs) I, the way I cook is, I mean, and my preferences have changed a little bit now that I am pregnant and I hope they go back, but like literally every meal I would eat roasted tomatoes and roasted cauliflower broccoli and serve that to my husband. You know, you get in your like food routines and those are just the foods that I crave and love. And, you know, similarly with tomato sauce, like I, you know, I, I, whatever I eat it on, it's just like a vehicle for me to get more sauce into my mouth. Like I love tomato sauce. That's great. And then you're passing it along to your husband too. So there you go. Yeah. I'm like, we're, we're set. Also, it seems like salmon is something to really focus on. I mean, I don't love the concept or term superfood, but it might be an actually really good description of what salmon is. Yeah, salmon does come up a lot, and it's because it really does have a lot of nutrients that can be helpful for pregnancy. So it has those omega-3 fatty acids. It has DHA, EPA, which are important fats that we need in our diet, especially for you know growing a, a healthy little baby. And it also contains vitamin D, which is important for a variety of reasons in addition to helping to boost our fertility. And it's also just a, a good, lean source of protein, too. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people are often kind of afraid of seafood a little bit when it comes to fertility and being pregnant. But, you know, you you should think about the benefits that outweigh many of the potential risks that are associated with, you know, some of the contaminants that might be found in mercury and things like that. Um, you know, I think that if you're eating it responsibly and, you know, not every single day, then it's it's really got a lot of health benefits that can do you well in the long run. In addition to really great dietary advice, you also include a section at the end of the book that talks about how it is important to pay attention to our food environment and particular toxins that we should be doing our best to avoid. Can you give us an example or two of what um, some of these toxins are and how they can in fact be avoided? Yeah. So this part of the book, I really didn't want to write because I wanted it to be, you know, very focused on what you can do and how you can, you know, promote your health by eating good foods. And I didn't want to kind of be a downer and, you know, be scary, but it's so important. I mean, it was something that was essentially unavoidable to talk about this. Um, I think that, you know, couple things that sort of stood out. I mean, we all know that, you know, there's, you know, pesticides in our food and we know that there's metals that get into our food from the soils. And we know that, you know, there's, you know, chemicals that are in fertilizers that, you know, end up in our food and inevitably end up in our bodies. And those things are obviously not going to help fertility and they're not going to help our health in general. So we try to avoid them. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, there's some other sort of things that kind of stand out that maybe people don't always necessarily recognize. So for instance, the way in which you cook your food can in some cases have a negative impact on fertility. So for instance, eating like blackened salmon or, you know, really char grilling something a lot on the grill and have that like sort of blackened um, approach to cooking, that can be negative because what ends up happening is when you cook foods that are tarred and blackened, they can end up, you know, having different chemicals that are created out of this high temperature cooking. And some of the chemicals that are formed have been associated with increased risk for cancers as well as infertility. And so it's, you know, one of those things where we often think, oh, yeah, if we're eating, you know, salmon on the grill, that's great. 
yeah, it is. It's healthy, but you have to make sure that the approach that you're using toward the cooking is also safe as well. What? Um, so final question here. Um, in terms of your research and advice, you have this book. It's coming out the end of March. Everybody needs to buy it. Um, and I'm curious about whether or not you will be doing any research on your own end about the like advice or some of the maybe meal plans that you have provided in this book to be able to, you know, look back on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really, you know, one of the goals is to see how we can, you know, improve on what we have even at this point in terms of, you know, education and information and, you know, helping people to better understand, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Because when we're trying to get pregnant or we're thinking about getting pregnant or if we're in the throes of, you know, struggling with infertility, we're a completely different population than somebody else. We're facing all these other challenges and we have a completely different thought pattern around things. And so I think, you know, much like we were talking about with pregnancy, it really does need to be personalized. And I think that that's the movement that I'm hoping we'll head toward is having a more personalized approach to all the things in our life, including fertility, including, you know, boosting our fertility and just finding ways in which we can, you know, find out what works for us, for our own health, not just having this, you know, one size fits all approach, which we know isn't always ideal for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, great. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Oh, thank you so much. I was happy to be here. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chong. Our show engineer is Matt Patterson. And our show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.